Last week we came to the part of the story where Joseph has identified himself not only as prime minister but as his brother's long lost brother, the one they sold into slavery. He's given his brothers the charge and the command to go home, get dad, bring the family so I can see them once again and that you guys can settle in Egypt and not fall prey to the famine that was taking place all around them. And our text finds uh, this story in in Genesis uh, chapter 45. We're going to finish up with Genesis 45, and then we're going to take a big swath of Scripture, chapters 46 and 47. But I want us to pick up where we left off. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find our passage of Genesis 45, 46, and 47, starting on page 39 in the Pew Bibles, uh, in the Pew Racks in front of you. But let me go ahead and read where we uh, left off last week. So they, the brothers, went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him Joseph is still alive he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and Jacob's heart became numb for he did not believe them but when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, that's Jacob, said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father God, we come and we ask humbly that you would speak to us this morning. That, Lord, as, as our hearts have been warmed uh, by the truth of what you've done in our lives through your son's death, burial, and resurrection, through the words that we've sung that remind us that you are good all the time, Lord, I pray that we would be challenged now to put you at the center of our lives, that we would not allow the world and, and our decisions and our relationships to revolve around us, but that all of who we are would revolve around you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to live God-centered lives. For your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. If I was to ask you one word to define yourself right now, what word would that be? Tired? Cranky? Crazy? uh, Busy? Excited? Brokenhearted? Cursed? Lucky? Hopeful? What word would it help you? Would it be cynical? Fearful? proud, ashamed, what word might define you this morning, might define the week that you found yourself living in? The word that I think is important for us to remember, and while those may all be adjectives about who we are or what we're experiencing, the word that I would hope would come to mind that I want you to meditate on this week is the word centered. The word centered. Because I believe that how you answer that question of how I'm centered will determine all of those adjectives that may come very easily into your heart and mind this morning. I might say even that if you're centered on the right things, it may change those adjectives or how you feel about yourself or your circumstances in the week to come. You see, we're going to look at the life of two individuals. Of course, Joseph, we've been looking at his life. But I want to also look at his 130-year-old father who comes back into the picture within this story. And I want you to see this morning that these two men were centered. 
They were centered on God and everything that they did, all components of their life, revolved around God and His plans and His purposes and His ways. But herein lies the problem for us this morning. For many of us, we look at Joseph's life and we say, we want the life of Joseph. Oh, we don't want the hardships and the struggles, but we recognize that trouble comes along with life. And Joseph has found a way to be able to live hard times and do those hard times well, which have allowed him to be used by God and exalted by God to be the prime minister of Egypt. And we want that kind of life. We want stability in the hard times. We want to exalt God in the good times. But herein lies the problem. We want the life of Joseph while we're living like his brothers. We want the blessings and benefits of a close walk with God while we are holding to our sin and our our struggles and our issues, unwilling to give an inch to God. You see, today what we learn in the story is what I want to call God-centered living. What I see in Jacob and in Joseph are lives that were lived well for the glory of God. They lived, if you will use this illustration, they lived with God in the middle. Go ahead and flip that screen for us. A simple thing that that asks the question, where is God in your life? In your relationships and decisions, dreams, family, finances, work, is God at the center? We're going to learn today that Jacob and Joseph made God the center. And we're going to see exactly how that takes place. But here's the problem. We usually don't live like this, even though we say we do. This is what it usually looks like. It's about me and my relationships, my health, my work, my finances, my family dreams and decisions. They all revolve around me, what I feel, what I think, how my emotions are at that time. Notice at the bottom, even God's a part of it. You see, the me-centered life isn't absent of God. God goes from being the center to you being the center and God becoming a part. Sadly, there are many Christians who have segmented God as a part of their life not as the whole, not as the hub of which everything uh, orbits around. You see, for us, we've got to battle against the me or self-centered life and put God in the center of it. But how do we do it? I see three things this morning that I want to highlight from this large passage of Scripture. The first one is, is that if we want to be involved in God-centered living, first of all, it involves seeking His direction, that is God's direction, At every one of our crossroads. At every one of our crossroads. You see, if you've lived long for any, lived life for any amount of time, then you recognize as I do, is that life is not just some single pathway. But it's filled with all manner of whys, or all manner of forks, or all manner of crossroads in our life. Moments of time and decisions that have to be made that we're going to either go to the left, the right, or the left, east or west, up or down, we have a decision to make. And our life is filled with those. Most of them are pretty small. Where are we going to go for lunch? What are we going to do today? What are we going to do this week? How are we going to, are we going to go to the concert or not go to the concert? Are we going to go to the ladies' dinner or not? Uh, are we going to church today or not? There, there are all manner of decisions we make that are pretty small. They're not going to change uh, the trajectory of our lives in those decisions. But if you've lived long enough, you recognize that there are some major crossroads in each of our lives. 
Will I go to that particular school? Will I date that individual, that certain individual? Will I marry them? Uh, will we have kids or not? Will, will we live in this place or that place? Will I take the job or, or, or what not? Big decisions. Decisions that change the trajectory of one's life. Well, the decision that we see before Jacob this morning is not a small one, it's a massive one. And the decision before him is a great decision. It's a decision that's not hard for him. It's one that's quite easy because at the beginning of Genesis 46, we come to a place where Jacob had been dreaming about. He had been dreaming about this, and he knew it would never take place, but standing before him are now his sons who are telling him that the son that he thought was dead was alive. If anyone's ever lost a loved one here, you recognize the great hunger you have, the great desire, the great dream you have, that everything you've experienced in the loss of a loved one was just a bad nightmare, and you wake up from this dream only to find out that the person you've lost is alive. How we would dream for that, how we would hope for that. Well, Jacob's living it. For 20-some years, Jacob has been under the assumption that his son has been dead. And why? Because the evidence was good. His sons had come. There were multiple uh, witnesses that they had found the garment, the multicolored garment that Joseph had been given by his dad. They had brought it as witnesses in tatters, with blood all about it, with the report that an animal had killed Joseph. Jacob had no reason but to believe their story. And here's why, for 20 years, they had never seen Joseph again. So if there was any doubt in Jacob's mind that if the story was true, after the first year or so, it probably was gone. Because he had never come back. It was a reality. Now, after a couple visits to Egypt, those brothers come back, and I talk about wanting to be a fly on the wall. I would have loved to have been in that tent. I would have loved to have seen what their response is. It would have been the proverbial good news, bad news, right? Dad, we've got some good news. The son that you thought was dead, he's alive. We've seen him in Egypt. And by the way, Dad, um, we sold them into slavery and lied to you. I mean, good news, bad news. I wonder what that response by Jacob was. But we're not told. Moses doesn't make us aware as he writes the book of Genesis. But it tells us that when he's given news, Jacob's heart goes numb. Ever had a numb feeling before? News that you've heard that just takes your breath away? And Jacob at first doesn't believe it, the text tells us. He doesn't believe it, and, and why would he? What a sick joke. The son that I've grieved for all these years, the son who I sent off at 17, who is now a full-grown man, probably around 40 years of age, who now has a child, I'm sorry, a wife and two children. I'm here to believe the one that I thought was dead is now alive. But then the story tells us that what changes the heart of his father is he looks out and he sees wagons coming. And they're not the wagons that he's used to. You see, the steering wheels were on the opposite side of the wagon. The first group didn't laugh at it. I don't think they understood what I was talking about. So I appreciate that. You are my favorite service. And he sees it, and he sees the Egyptian wagons. 
And so the story has some heft to it because he's starting to see those aren't our wagons, those aren't our provisions, and no doubt those Egyptian movers that came with it, I don't know those guys. And the only plausible thing is to believe what the brothers have said. And so Jacob, 130 years old, what's his response? Let's load up. Let's head to Egypt. And so imagine, if you will, for a moment, the, the, the video montage at the beginning of the Beverly Hillbillies. All manner of stuff is all brought in. They brought granny. They brought the rocking chair. They brought everything. The text tells us at the beginning of chapter 46 that everything is brought. Nobody's left behind. In fact, we'll see later on that they do a whole head count. Who's all with us? And with haste, they head out. Can you imagine Jacob loading up his stuff? The quickest moving, the quickest packing you've ever seen done. I want to go see my son. The son I thought who was dead. He's alive. He's in Egypt and he's successful. I want to put my arms around him. Let's load this stuff up as quickly as possible and let's head down to Egypt. And that's exactly what he does. But at the beginning of chapter 46, we see that he stops. Why would a guy who is so uh, heart set on seeing his son, loading up his family as quick as possible, getting them on their journey, why does he stop? I believe that at the beginning of chapter 46 is a lesson for all of us. It says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, and spoke to Israel in visions, I'm sorry, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, saying, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So why in the world, in this, all this quickness to go see J uh, Joseph, does Jacob stop? Lesson number one I want you to notice is, is the reason why we need to seek God's direction at every crossroad is because we need to recognize our emotions have to be put in their proper place. We need to recognize our emotions have a proper place. No parent would ever fault J uh, Jacob for doing what he's done. How many parents have with great excitement come home after not seeing their kids longing just to take them up in their arms. How many of you, after you've packed your children away to go to college, look forward to parent weekend in October? I know the kids probably don't, but the parents enjoy that. And they look with great admiration that they count down the days of seeing their children. But listen, it's compounded. The child that they're going to see is the one they thought for 20 years has been dead. And so no one can fault Jacob, let's go, let's get to Egypt as quick as possible. And so he's hurrying, he's getting going, but then he stops. He stops in a place called Beersheba, which is halfway between where they were at in Canaan. And if you will, if you're noticing with me, Canaan's up here and Egypt is down here. Somewhere in the middle between Canaan and Egypt is Beersheba. Jacob's father had built an altar in Beersheba. He had spent some time there. And Jacob stops. Why would he do that? 
I believe because Jacob understood that while his emotions were running high, he needed to know that emotions come second to God. You see, for many of us this morning, we make our decisions based on emotions. We go out and we're going to go shopping this Christmas and we know what we're going to have to get, but we always come back with that one extra thing, right? Why? Because emotions get the best of us. We look at that blouse, we look at that pair of jeans, we look at that uh, certain piece of technology, and, and, and our emotions get the best of us. And we feel that warm and fuzzy feeling. I know you get it. I get it. And we say we've got to have it. It happens when we uh, go and just say we're going to peruse the new car lot, right? Just going to look, see what new gadgets are out there. Then we sit in the car. And we look in that little rearview mirror and we look at our faces and 20 years has now been lifted off of our faces. We feel 20 pounds lighter. We just feel so much better sitting in that new car. There's something about that smell that, that races the heart. And we say, you got to have it. Or we hold that baby and we think that our days of having newborns is done and then we hold that little one. And it makes those funny faces and those quirky noises. And we say, maybe we're not so done. Our emotions get the best of us. That's when Amanda and I start talking about diaper regiments and all manner of things, right? Our emotions can get the best of us. And for many of us, we make decisions out of emotion. And sometimes that's okay. But emotion should always take the passenger seat in your decision making because God should be in the driver's seat. And here the emotions of a 130 year old man are racing. I want to go see my son, but he has the wherewithal to say, you know what? Emotions aren't what center me. God does. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to wait for what? Notice the next thing for God to give permission. For God to give permission because we need permission. As, as kids, you are taught early on that you need to seek permission from your parents in all manner of things, right? What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you go, who you're going with, what time you're going to be home, all, all kinds of permission. I remember as a, as a new married couple, Amanda and I had come uh, straight from our parents' house into our married life together. So we were kids that didn't live on our own, but we went straight as 20-year-old kids into the new marriage relationship. And I remember uh, on the honeymoon and the weeks afterwards, we always thought we had to ask for permission. And I remember it dawned on me one night, we had been out with some friends, it was late, and we're driving home, and I looked to a man, I said, hey, are you tired? She says, no, I'm not tired. I said, let's go catch a movie. It's like almost one o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, we better ask for permission. I'm like, wait a minute, we don't have to. We're adults. We could watch a twin bill and watch movies all night if we want to. We don't have to ask anybody for anything. We're adults. And what a glorious feeling that was. We're in charge. But herein lies the problem. As Christ followers, no matter how old you are, 20 or 130, you still need the permission of God. And so many of us live the me-centered life that we forget that with every decision that we make, with every direction that we start heading in, we've got to stop and ask the question, God, 
Is it okay? Now, I, now let's be sensible people, okay? I, I want to be careful with this. Uh, do you need to stop and say, God, do you, uh, do you want me to eat today? God, do you want me to have Burger King or McDonald's? Okay, do I go to Jewel or Aldi? Okay, let's be sensible. There are decisions that we're going to make that are going to be quick and whatnot, but, but I'm talking about some of those more major decisions. I'm talking about the decisions that will have some bearing in your life. What about my job? What about the raising of my kids? What about the church that we attend? What about how we spend our money? What about how we use our time? What about these things that have real effect in our lives? Do you seek the permission of God? Jacob had every right in his freedom to head down to Egypt. He was a 130-year-old man. The prime minister, for Pete's sakes, is his son. He hasn't seen him. He can go and head down there. But he stops. And he seeks the permission of God. Notice he uh, gives sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. I want you to recognize this morning that there are three things that I see that are important. Number one, if you underline in your Bible, underline the phrase sacrifices. And if you want to circle the S, that makes it plural. You see, one of the things that we do is when we want God to do something, this is what happens. God, I want a new car. God, I want a new house. God, I want this new job. And what we do is we got to make a decision between A and B. Do I keep my house and my job and my car? Or do I get a new one of all those things? And here's what we do. Lord Jesus, lead me in this decision, and I pray that you'll uh, make me successful in all that I do. Amen. And then you make a decision. One prayer. You haven't heard from God, but you said, hey, I, I, I was prayerful about it. What Jacob does is he makes sacrifices. Not one, probably not two, probably not three, but in the Hebrew, the idea is as many sacrifices are given. He sits there for a while. He doesn't move. And his patience, listen, is not based on a positive answer. It's based on God, you tell me what to do. You see, many of us will say, God, I'll worship you if you allow me to buy the new car, if you allow me the new house, if you allow me the new job, if you allow me all manner of things. But Jacob says, I am going to wait for your direction, and if you say, go to Egypt, I'll go. If you tell me to stay, I believe with all my heart that Jacob would have stayed right where he was at. He said, God, if you don't want me there, then I won't go. Now, why would this bring him pause? Because Jacob knew that his father and his grandfather had run into trouble in Egypt before. And so Jacob knows that where I'm going is in some ways unchartered territory. Here's the other thing that Jacob knows. I'm leaving Canaan. And that may not be all that important to you, But to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, he had left northern Iraq to go to Canaan. Why? Because God said, in Canaan, I will make you a great nation. So Jacob says, but wait a minute, God. Did you not say I'm supposed to stay here in Canaan? You have confirmed that. You have affirmed it along the way that I shouldn't go to the left or to the right of it. Now my emotions are pulling me to go to Egypt where my grandfather had problems and my father had issues. And and my emotions are saying, go, 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 go. But I am going to live a God-centered life and I'm going to say, stay, stay, stay until you say go. Can I tell you how many bad decisions I've made because of emotion? 
because my emotions have driven me. And not stopping. Can I tell you how many good decisions I've made because I've waited on God? Notice what God says. Hey, you can go. And not only can you go, but I want you to recognize that I'm going to be with you. You're going to be there, and you're going to be there for the rest of your life because notice he says, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You're going to die, and Joseph's going to be right by your side. So listen, Jacob, you're good. You don't have to worry about anything. I'm with you. And you're going to live there for the rest of your life, and it's going to be okay. And here's what's going to transpire. While you may see this as a detour, Jacob, it's a part of my plan. Write that down. The reason why we need to check with God at every crossroads is because God's got a plan. And so notice as the text goes on, that in verse 5, he sets out from Beersheba, and he carried Israel, the sons of Israel carry Jacob, their father, all the little ones, all their wives. I'll help you with the next couple of verses. They take everything. And notice... In verse 8, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob, and then we have verse upon verse of all, all kinds of names. For those that are with child, here's some great names for you, okay? In the nursery, we need some Hanoks and Palus and Hezrons and Carmes and Zohars. What a great name, Zohar, a little blonde girl. Hi, what's your name? I'm Zohar. Be great, Okay. And Puvas and Zebulons and Secreds and Elons and Jaleels. I mean, there are great names in there, right? Names that scare the daylights out of every preacher who's going to read them, okay? Why all these names? Number one, these names are here because everybody matters to God. God doesn't leave anybody behind. And maybe today you've been left behind by your family and friends. Maybe you've been told you're insignificant. Every time you run into a genealogy... It should be an affirmation to you that you're important just as those people were, those no-named people. We don't know nothing about the majority of these people, but God did. And God had a plan, and God had a purpose. And we need to be careful because we need to recognize Jacob's going to take 70 of his descendants with him, and his decision is going to have bearing on the decision for years to come. Many don't know this, but you know that my family on my father's side comes from Iraq. I want you to know that the decision to come to America was not a, a late-in-the-game one. My two great-great-grandparents met at the Chicago World's Fair at the turn of the last century. And they saw, for the first time, electricity light up the fairgrounds. They had never seen that in Iraq. They had never seen anything like this before. And the two sets of parents who had prearranged my grandparents' wedding to one another said, we will from a young age tell our children and our grandchildren that America's their home. And from 1900 on, it took until 1960s for that, that promise to come a reality. And I want you to recognize that you are here because there's been decisions that have been made that God has used in His plan to bring you to the time and place that you are. And God is using you in your times and your moments for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And here's what you want to be careful with. I don't want to take God on a detour. I don't want to tell God I'm not going his way, I'm going to go another way, because that will have bearing and impact in the lives of those who are to come. So dad, your decisions have bearings on your children. 
And your children's children. My father made decisions that would have had massive effects on the lives of generations to come. So we better get them right. We better follow God. Here's why. Notice some of the names in this genealogy. Let's look at some of them. We see some Hezron, Perez, Zerah. Now these names seem not all that important to you. They're the sons of Judah. Now two sons would die in the land of Canaan, but there would be sons that would, would go on. And you say, well, what's so big about those names? Well, if you were to move to the first part of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, you would see those four names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Our decisions and our actions have huge implications. Are you going to live them with a self-centered and me-centered approach, or are you going to seek God? That's the question this morning. Question number two we've got to ask or, or we've got to think through is as we want to live a God-centered life, if we're going to do so, it's going to involve stopping our desire to get comfortable with the world. Now let's fast forward a little bit. They get down to Egypt. And we're a part of this grand reunion that takes place. Oh my goodness, how awesome that must have been. Joseph running to his father who's now aged and, and, and this young teenager that Jacob saw now is this strapping young man with a wife and two kids. He's dressed in all the regalia of Egyptian customs for royalty. He begins to tell his dad all the stories. Dad, I was faithful to the things that you taught me. Dad, I did what was right. Even when it was hard, Dad, what you taught me about serving with integrity and character, I did. Dad, I was in prison and I honored you and I honored our God. Even when a, a pretty lady came my way and tried to tempt me, I ran away from it. Dad, you would have been so proud of me when I stood before Pharaoh and spoke on behalf of our God amidst a Pharaoh who had many gods. And I told him of the dream, Dad, you would have been so proud. Look at my two boys. They take after us. They didn't take Egyptian names. They took Hebrew ones. And the tears of joy to the point that Jacob says, I can die now. I can die. My heart is so full. If I died today, I'd die a contented man. But doesn't the tests of life come in prosperity? So Jacob's family moves. All of his inhabitants, they come to Egypt. They leave a place of famine. They leave a place where they're as good as dead because there's nothing there. And they come into Egypt because of their brother and his son. They come into Egypt where there's grain flowing, where there's food and there's water because Jacob, or Joseph has done what he's needed to and followed the plans of God. And now they're not just shepherds, but now they come in and they're family with the prime minister of Egypt. They've got friends in high places. I wonder if the theme song of the Jeffersons was going along as they were heading into Egypt. Well, we're moving on up, right? To an Egyptian apartment in the sky. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Things were going to get comfortable for these Canaanites, for these Hebrew people. They were coming into the most sophisticated and largest city in the known world at the time with all sorts of temptations, 
all sorts of allurements, all kinds of opportunities to live totally different than they did before. There were gods they could worship. There were pursuits that were never made available to them in their land of Canaan. And I wonder if they started looking and going, wow, now we're going to enjoy the life. We don't have to worry about anything. Joseph's there as prime minister. We've got all that we need. And Joseph makes a decision. Notice in the text that Joseph speaks to his brothers in uh, 40, uh, 47, or 46, the end of chapter 46, starting uh, in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they are keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to Egyptians. So Joseph says, all right, listen, I'm going to go talk to the boss. And I'm going to bring you to the boss. And here's what you're going to tell the boss. You're going to tell the boss exactly what you told me. Don't lie. Don't tell Pharaoh you're something that you're not because when I go and talk to him, I'm telling him exactly what you are. We're a bunch of shepherds. We're lowly people. And in fact, we're coming into a culture that we're an abomination. Okay? And so he tells them that. And he says, when you stand before Pharaoh, you tell him that. You be honest about who you are. Write that down. Be honest about who you are. Why? so that you will live in the land of Goshen. Goshen was set apart from Egyptian culture. Goshen was a place of great agriculture, but because shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptian culture, they had their own little spot. You hang there and don't worry about all the hubbub of the city, all the hubbub of Egyptian culture. You will be set by yourself. So be honest about who you are. And that will serve as a protection from all of the entrapments that the Egyptian world would bring. Now what does this have to do with our desire to get too comfortable in this world? As Christians, we are sojourning, as Jacob said, sojourning in this world. This is not our home. And we need to stop getting so comfortable in a place that's not our home. we got to quit setting foundations... I don't know what's happening. Um, sounds like my microphone went out. Okay. We need to stop setting foundations where we should be setting up takes, tent stakes. Right? We can cut that out. That's got to cut out too. Okay? Because this is not our home. And so as they get to Goshen, they are reminded that Egypt isn't their place. Now how does that work for us as Christians? As Christians, this isn't our home. Let's not get too comfortable or cozy with the things around us. So how, what do we do? We're honest about who we are. How many people know that you're a Christian in your workplace and in your school and in your neighborhood and in your family? Amanda and I made a decision some time ago that we would lead in many of our conversations in a humble yet honest way that we are Christ followers. 
not in a self-righteous way, but let's just be honest about who we are, because if that's going to be a problem, if that Christ following is going to be an issue to our friendship, let's just get it out on the table right now, because what we're going to talk about is Jesus. And how we live our life is going to be about Jesus. And the things that the world says is a priority aren't going to be a priority to us because it's about Jesus. So we've had all manner of conversation with coaches, with teachers, with school administrators, with neighbors, with family, with friends, that Jesus is going to be number one in the Badal house. And everybody knows. And everybody's aware. And here's the risk that you have when you do that. Someone will say, you're an abomination. Well, great. Wonderful. Thanks for letting me know. I would rather be in an abomination in this world and be loved by the God of the universe than vice versa. And we need to recognize that. And what needs to happen is God has given us that ability to articulate that for a reason. For our protection. Why? Because when I lead with that, number one, people are going to expect something different of me. So not only has it put them on alert, but it's put me on alert. Now that I've said I'm a Christian, now I've got to live up to it, right? Now I can't advertise one thing and live another. So the protection is now you've set it out there. You can't go incognito. You can't fake your way through it. Number two is it protects me because what happens is this, a lot of the stuff that this world offers, people don't even send our way, right? And maybe it doesn't mean you get invited to that drunken party and all manner of things. Nobody's making uh, moves on us with sinful desires and thoughts because they say, hey, this guy doesn't want any of that. She doesn't want any of that. Steer clear the Badals. They're more in love with Jesus than the things of this world. You see, we've got to lead with that. We've got to be honest about that. Far too many of us are struggling with the God-centered life and me-centered life because we've never articulated to anybody else, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jacob does. He stands before Pharaoh. And he stands before this pagan leader, this leader who's leading a pagan country, this leader who has all manner of gods, who has all manner of sensuality around him. The pharaohs were known to have multiple wives and multiple concubines and multiple debauchery. You name it, they had it. And Jacob walks in and he's an aged man who has seen the error of his ways and he's bringing his family into this culture. And here's the opportunity, right, for Jacob to call out Pharaoh. You see, God told you so. You're a group of sinners. You're evil. You're an abomination, right? He just, what an opportunity. I've heard some say, if I could just be in the Oval Office, I would give our president, tell our president a thing or two. I'd let him have it. How angry God is with him. What does Jacob do? He blesses him twice. Oh, if we would understand and know that sometimes God doesn't give us the job of cursing, but the job of blessing. We need to be honest about who we are, and we need to be honorable to everyone around us. We have been called to give the reason for the hope that we have. Jacob gets that opportunity in verses 7 through 9. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and they stood before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't try to convict him of his sin. He doesn't try to do anything. He says, listen, Pharaoh, God bless you. God give you long life. God be good to you. 
God care for you. I pray that God would, would unload his blessings upon you. And I want to do the same. You see, as Christians, we have opportunity to do one of two things. To bring blessings into the lives of people or, or curses. And can I just say, and you can disagree with me, and I, it's okay, good people disagree all the time, but can I just say the year 2016 wasn't very good for evangelical Christianity? Because we had an opportunity this last year during the, all the hubbub of the election to bring compassion and mercy and love and unity and peace and all of those virtues that we preach and amen on Sunday morning, we could have brought with great affection those things into our election system. But what did we do? Instead of virtue, we brought vitriol. Instead of radical love, we brought more rhetoric. Now, that doesn't mean we can't disagree with one another. I can assure you Jacob disagreed with Pharaoh. But isn't there a time with unbelievers around us, we just bless them and love them and care for them? And when we do speak the truth, we do so in a respectful and honorable way. And we missed it. Now, good, the good of God is he's going to give us new opportunities. We have opportunities to display the mercies of God each and every day. But we need to be honest about who we are and honorable as Jacob was to those around us. Finally, let me close with this. Living a God-centered life involves serving with diligence and compassion. The rest of chapter 47, and you can read it at your own uh, leisure, uh, is all about Joseph's working with the famine. Seven years of good have gone on. Now we're a couple years into the bad years of famine. This is where the going gets tough. And the verses in chapter 47 from verse 13 uh, to almost the end of the chapter is Joseph living through the most difficult times of the famine. And he's the prime minister. He's the one that has the job of making sure everybody has what they need. Think about it this way. If you think you got a lot of pressure on your job, think of an entire nation leaning on you in every decision you make. I'm watching, I just finished watching the Netflix documentary on Hank Paulson, who is the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. And he is interviewed in this documentary about how he felt as the Treasury Secretary having to make decisions when the greatest economic downturn was taking place. Decisions that would have ramifications. At one point he was in a meeting. And he got so worked up. In the meeting with the president and senators, he started to dry heave. He was so nervous, which made everybody in the room nervous, okay? His wife said he was so preoccupied with the task before them. They were out on a bike ride, and he was so preoccupied in his thoughts, he did not see a, a tall metal fence before him and ran his bike right into the fence. You think you got pressure? I mean, I just flip pork chops for a living, right? The economic world doesn't rise and fall in decisions I make, but they were for J uh, Joseph. People would live or die based on Joseph. And what does Joseph show us? Utter diligence. All throughout this text, you could just write the word, Joseph was diligent. He did the job, and he did it well. And it comes to me here on a Sunday that isn't that what our work is all about? You see, work is important because it's where we spend the most amount of time. Work's so important because it has a way of pushing us to our limits. 
Work is important because it forces us to figure things out. Shortcuts won't make it at work. And the question is, in your work environment, whether in the home or in the school or in the workplace, do people see a diligence in you that when they say, hey, you've done well on this test, you've done well on this project, you've done well in this home, that your response is, I work not only for you, but for the glory of God. That's what Joseph did. But also notice he did it with compassion. A needy world was around him. And he ministered every time. As you read this text, you will see the people came to him and he ministered to them. But I want to talk about ministry in a very specific way. Because the text says, at the, uh, right before verse 13 of chapter 47, that his brother and his fathers and all of his relatives received what they needed from Joseph. Wait a minute, aren't these the guys that betrayed him? Aren't these the guys that threw him into slavery? And he showed compassion. This is speculation, but give me a moment. I don't see anywhere that the moment that he became prime minister, that, that there was an arrest warrant out for Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar. Right? I don't see anything that... Uh, and the cupbearer was put back in prison because he forgot Joseph. It says that all of Egypt came. That's an all-inclusive statement. All of Egypt came and Joseph served them and Joseph honored them and Joseph provided for them because diligence isn't enough. Just to get the job done isn't enough. It's how you treat people in the process. You want to live God-centered lives? You want to have God-centered living as a, as a description of your life? How does it look at work? Do you serve with diligence and do you serve with compassion? So this morning... We have this question before us. Is it about me or is it about God? Ask yourself, am I seeking his direction at every crossroads or is it about me? Am I stopping my desire to get too comfortable in this world so I can understand that this world is not my home? Is it about God or is it about me? And am I serving at work with diligence and compassion? You're sensible people. And you've got to ask yourself this question. And you've got to allow the Spirit to do the convicting work as He's doing in my life. But my hope and prayer is that you will see some of the errors as I have of my way and put God front and center that every decision we make, everywhere we go, God will be the one who will be driving and not us.